said earlier, it is indeed a great joy and pleasure to be here this morning. The greatest joy that we have in life sometimes maybe ought to just be what we do on Sunday morning. When we meet together with brothers and sisters of like precious faith. We meet here in the house of God. We, we should be meeting in a place void of turmoil. I know that there's a lot of turmoil that goes on out in the world around us. There's a lot of struggling that goes on in the world around us. When we come in here, this ought to be just a great place of joy, and a time of refreshing, a time of relaxing from the cares of this world and a time that we ought to be able to just turn our thoughts on to the study of God and His Word and to the worship of His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn again to the book of Job, chapter 11, and read to you uh, once again the question uh, that was posed to Job. We want to continue our thoughts on discovering God, because I do believe that it is the greatest quest, and it is the greatest question that any man can ever ponder in life, how to move from knowing the doctrine of God, knowing the person of God. That was something that Job learned in his experience. He learned a little bit on how to move from the doctrine of God to the person of God. Uh, it was in Job's experience that he was a wise person. The Bible tells us that. It, it, we understand that that's a lesson that the Bible is teaching us, that Job was a wise individual. And Job was a uh, reverenced individual. Uh, there's a portion in the book of Job that tells us that when Job spake and other men heard him, they put their hands over their mouth so not to interrupt him. And that's kind of what Job is, is alluding to in the 42nd chapter when he says that I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear and now mine eye seeth me. I do cover mine own mouth with my hand. It, Job had reached a point where when you understand who and what God is, it makes you want to just cover your mouth so you don't interrupt him. It makes you want to cover your mouth so that you don't say anything that's disrespectful to the God of glory. Uh, Job had learned a lesson of how to move from knowing just the doctrine of God to knowing the person of God, and I believe that's probably a lifelong, uh, it's a lifelong study for any serious uh, child of God. I think the term biblical theologian is a ridiculous term because I don't think that there's anybody who ever becomes a complete expert on the Bible as a whole. I think that we constantly learning until the day we die. Uh, I like what someone said. They, they may want on their tombstone uh, thank you for your patience. Instruction is now through. Uh, that, that seems to be what our life is like from the moment we're born to the day we die. There's constant construction going on. There's a constant mess that surrounds us. And when we finally pass this scene of life, construction is through. We're sorry about the mess. Thank you for your patience. Question, though, was asked in Job chapter 11 and verse 7, Canst thou by searching find out God? 
we understand that the ultimate answer to that is no. The Bible tells us that God is a spirit, and they that worship him in spirit must worship, or that it worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's John chapter 4, where that's located. The Bible tells us that after Jesus' resurrection in the uh, Gospel of Luke, verse 24, or Luke uh, chapter 24, uh, there were two men walking from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus, and they were confused about the events of that day. It said that as Jesus joined them, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. What that means is that their eyes were, were blinded, not from physical sight. They could physically see uh, the road that was in front of them, the trees that were beside them, and the sky that was over them. Their eyes were holding. It meant their understanding was blocked, that they could not perceive the person standing next to them. The person standing next to them was the Lord Jesus Christ. Having raised himself from the dead, he comes and joins them uh, in their topic and in their trial. And he says unto them, what manner of communications are these that you have, you know, amongst yourselves as you walk and talk, that you're, you're sad and perplexed and discouraged about what's going on? Hey, what's, what's happening with yourselves? And we get from that perspective, we get from that picture that in order for someone to truly understand and comprehend the Lord Jesus Christ, there's got to be a revelation that occurs from God to the individual. Nobody will ever be able to study themselves into the truth. You can study a lifetime and never come to the knowledge of the truth of God. When Jesus asked Peter, whom do men say that I am, Peter finally admitted, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said unto him, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Our understanding that God exists is not a searched out study that we have done. Our understanding that God exists is a revelation from God himself. If God does not reveal himself to mortal men, Mortal men would be blinded to his existence. Can thou by searching find out God? No. Can thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Now, if God reveals himself to us, there's an encouragement that Peter gives us in his book to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he has revealed himself to us, then we have the opportunity before us to discover things about God. But the question is, is can thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Well, the first question I have is, is does that term perfection mean unerred knowledge? Is it possible for you to find out God to a point where you have unerrant knowledge about him? And I would say the answer to that is no. For there's no point in our life on this earth where our knowledge is without error. I believe that there's a lot of people who have a knowledge of God, but it is an errant knowledge 
of the Almighty. Now, if the word perfection here doesn't mean, uh, as we would say, sinless perfection or uh, knowledge without error, if it doesn't mean that, but if it means the term maturity, then I would say yes. Can thou find out the Almighty unto perfection or unto a mature understanding? I would say at some point, yes. Uh, you remember when Jesus gave uh, a parable in the New Testament, the sower of the seed and this, that, and the other, and the seed fell upon this ground and it fell upon that ground. Uh, one of the descriptions of that seed said it brought forth no fruit unto perfection. Well, anybody who's been a farmer realizes that fruit that comes unto perfection doesn't mean it's without error. It just means it's to maturity. It means the stalk of corn grows, the ear uh, grows, and it grows to a point where you can pluck it and eat it. It's a, it's a point of maturity, what the Bible oftentimes means. It very seldom means sinless perfection, unless you're talking about God himself. Now, when you're talking about God, such as in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, our God is a rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are judgment and past finding out, and they're perfect. Uh, if you want to make that perfection, sinless perfection, when you're talking about God, you can make it as perfect as you want to, absolutely. But when you're talking about human beings, we're never talking about sinless perfection, but we are talking about a level of grown-up maturity. Can you buy... Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Can your understanding of the Almighty grow and become a more mature understanding of the Almighty? I would say the answer is yes. One of the problems, though, with that is we oftentimes attempt to define God based on the understanding that we have of the world around us. We attempt to define God and understand God based on the world that we have around us. And that world around us that we start with is our family. We have our mother and our father, and we're judging the world around us based on parents that we have. And it's at some point in our grown-up adult life that we begin to dread who we are, and the mistakes that we have made, because we oftentimes fear the mistakes we've made have ruined the generation that will come after us. I don't know that there's any parent who sits back and says, you know what, I did a perfect job. I don't know about the rest of y'all. I don't know that there's any person who sits back and doesn't think, well, let me, let me just say it this way in the, positive, in the positive light. I believe that all of us, if we were to sit back and to judge our life in the past, we would find a number of places where we feel like we have messed up irrevocably, unfixingly, and it would discourage us if, if we were to sit there long enough, we would become completely discouraged if the generation that comes after us is completely ruined because of the mistakes that we have made in our day. That would be okay for you to think if God didn't exist. It would be okay for you to think that if God didn't exist. If the success of the next generation that comes after us was completely, you notice I said completely, if it was completely dependent upon our interaction with that generation, 
then we might would say that the generation that comes after us is completely done for. But God exists, friends. And if you have a woman in America like Madeline Murray O'Hare, who championed greatly in, what, the 60s, 70s, 80s, somewhere around in that time, to have prayer removed from the public school system. She hated God. That there was, She was not ashamed to tell you this neither. And by the way, she was not an ignorant individual. She was a well-educated person. She hated God and raised her children to hate God. And yet her son is, last I read, pastor of a Christian church. How is it that an individual raised in a house by a human woman to hate God can grow up to become the pastor of a church? Because the revelation of God himself supersedes the inadequacies of human interaction. Canst thou by study, canst thou by searching, canst thou in thy life find out the Almighty unto perfection? In an unerrant knowledge, no. But to a mature way, yes. You have to understand that God the Father is not like your Father. God the Father is not like your father or my father. If you don't think, though, by the way, that people treat men and women differently, listen to their Mother's Day sermons and their Father's Day sermons. When was the last time you heard a pastor stand up and talk about how bad mothers were? how horrible mothers were, how they've mistreated their children. You ever heard one of those? But when was the last time you heard, fathers, it's your fault the nation's going to hell. Fathers, you've not done enough. Fathers, you've worked too much. When was the last time you heard that one? Yeah, you hear that one a lot, don't you? Guess what, children? You're messed up because of both of your parents. Well, that was quiet, wasn't it? But there's something that supersedes both of our parents. And that's God Almighty. And today, for a few minutes, we'd like to attempt to go through the Scriptures and attempt to discover God again. Discover a little bit about who and what God is. Remember we said last week that we can look at creation and uh, reasonably concur that there is a God. We can look at creation and from that standpoint reasonably believe that there is an uh, almighty, all-powerful creator who made this earth. But the creation itself doesn't tell us much about the character of God and the nature of God. We said there's got to be something, there's got to be something better than that that shows us the character of God. And that thing that is better 
then the creation of this world is the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible is written, number one, from the standpoint that it presumes the existence of God. For when it begins in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible does not attempt to explain the origin of God. It does not attempt to tell us where God came from. It, it doesn't tell us anything except in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It presupposes the existence of God. For I, I could conjecture that could we explain the existence of God, He would not be much of a God to start with. But then we move to the person of Jesus Christ. Human history is replete with abusing the term greatest. He's the greatest person in the field of academia. She's the greatest person in the field of literature. He's the greatest person uh, in this. She's the greatest person in that. People talk about the greatest evangelist among the uh, Christian church. Who do y'all think might be the greatest evangelist in the 20th or 21st century that we have known? Doesn't matter. The greatest evangelist ever was God Almighty. The greatest display of evangelism is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke and it was done. The greatest display of the power of God is when God spoke the world into existence. And He didn't take six days to do it because it was a hard thing to do. He took six days to do it because it was His choice to do he could have created in six minutes or six seconds if he'd have wanted to. Maybe he's showing us that, our, that in our life, we don't always have to be in a rush to get everything done. It is possible to work and take a break. The greatest event in human history was not the day we landed a rocket on the moon. On the moon. The, the greatest event in human history was, was not the freeing of the slaves. It was not the overthrow of Hitler's regime and the tearing down of Holocaust barracks. The greatest event in human history was not multiplying loaves and bread. It was not the time that Israel was led 40 years in the wilderness with miracles for 40 days. The greatest event in human history was when God invaded this old world in the person of Jesus Christ. When the prophet of old in Isaiah chapter 7 told us, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and Bring forth a child, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. It's one of the greatest prophecies ever to be written. And I'd like for you to notice something. If you, if you care to turn to Isaiah chapter 7, there is 
Great speculation about this verse. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This virgin conceives and bears a son and the, the, con- the conflict and the confrontation and the controversy that arises in this verse is around the definition of the word young and around the definition of the word virgin in this text. A virgin can be described and defined as a young woman. And I've I've gotten on the internet and I've read page after page after page of people trying to uh, define this Hebrew word for virgin here as young woman. And there's If you've ever listened to much public debate, you will know that there are a lot of people who love to hear the sound of their own voice. If you've ever listened to much public debate on any topic or any issue, you realize that there are a lot of people who love to stand up and ramble and bark and speak and foam at the mouth and they can say a multitude of words and say nothing at all. And I've read people who've gone page after page after page trying to say that this word virgin is incorrectly translated and it ought to be translated young woman instead. Can we just ask God what he thinks about this? How about that? I think a lot of our public debates would would go away if people would just stop and ask God what he thinks. The issue of men's place, the issue of women's place, all of this would go away if both the men and the women would stop looking at each other saying, what do you think my place is? And if both of them would look at God and say, God, what do you think my place is? I'm confident that the number of people who are arguing in the public square have no idea what God thinks. What do you think? After all, that's what Paul said. That's what Saul of Tarsus said in the book of Acts when the Lord struck him down. He said, Lord, what would the Pharisees have me to do? Lord, what would the high council have me to do? Lord, what would be the politically correct thing for me to do? He didn't ask any of those questions. He said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And if the Lord answers your question, nobody else need answer. Let's ask the Lord what he thinks. The very first uh, phrase in this, in this verse says, the Lord himself shall give you a sign, right? What's the purpose for a sign? Driving down the highway, there's a sign. What's that sign mean? It means the road ahead of you is different from the road behind you. The speed limit's going to change. The curvature of the road is going to change. The slope of the hill is going to change. Something in front of you is different about what's been behind you. Is that a fair assessment? Now let me ask you this question. Do young women conceive and bear children? They do it all the time, right? Y'all were young once. You bore children in your youth, did you not? Happens all the time, doesn't it? So who would need a sign that a young woman was going to bring forth a child? 
It's no different than the way it's always been. But would you not need a sign when a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child? A virgin child, a woman who'd never known a man, is now expecting a child. She's never been with a man, never had relations with a man. She's all of a sudden now expecting. She is pregnant and she's bringing forth a child. That's a sign, is it not? You didn't need four pages of internet history outlining definition words, did you? All you needed to do was just read what God had written in his text. And God says, I will serve you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in chapter 9, Here is a second prophecy of this same concept in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, in my estimation, requotes both of these passages. When he says that the angel came to, to Joseph and told him to fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. He says in Matthew 1 and verse 23 and that uh, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which by interpretation is God with us. That the person of Christ, when he was born into that uh, lowly and poor family, was not just God on our side, but he was very God in our presence. And see, Isaiah just said, call his name Emmanuel. Matthew said in Matthew 1 and 23, I'm going to define that term for you. And the term Emmanuel is God with us. He really is the only one who have ever been worthy to bear the name Emmanuel. When Isaiah said in chapter 9 that he is the mighty God, how can you miss that? There are folks all across this nation who call him wonderful. They call him counselor and they seek his counsel. They call him the prince of peace and they seek his peace in their life, but they cannot see to call him God in the flesh. And yet when John said in John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, notice John chapter 1 and verse 18. When Jesus says, uh, or, or John the Baptist says, no man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. 
The term declared here in John chapter 1 and verse 18 can be defined in many ways, but one of the ways it can be defined as manifest. The term declared is also defined as the word manifest. And Paul told that to Timothy when he spoke to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. What's your concepts of the term being manifest in the flesh? Well, let me offer this to you. I do a lot of driving around the road. I do a lot of uh, hauling freight from one place to the next. And I'm often given, when I leave a particular location, a bill of lading. My driver's copy is a bill of, they call it a bill of lading nowadays. It's a purchase order. Uh, everything that's on this piece of paper uh, is supposed to be in the back of that truck, and everything in the back of that truck is supposed to be on this piece of paper so that when I'm stopped by the authorities, I can show them what I'm carrying. Uh, today's it's called a bill of lading. It's called a purchase order. But many years ago, I do remember that being called by older folks a manifest, a shipping manifest, a driving manifest. What's the manifest? A manifest is a declaration of what's in front of you. When, when the Bible says that God was manifest in the flesh, it's saying everything about Christ is everything about God. There's no difference in the two. But when Christ came to this earth, Paul reminds us that he took upon himself the form of a servant. And I think a lot of people, they like to focus on that aspect about Christ, in which that is true. If you want to be a, a, a mature disciple of Christ, the first thing that you need to have is a servant's attitude. How many times have you looked around the office and said, wow, too many chiefs, not enough Indians. A lot of people pointing the finger, telling what to do, but nobody wanting to pick up the shovel and do it. Well, that's what Jesus did. He picked up the shovel and did it. He came down here and said, you want to know how to be a servant? Watch me. This is how it works. And so those who deny the Trinity get often heavy handed on the fact that Jesus was just a servant. Well, we pointed out last week, he's also the Lamb of God in John 1. Does that mean he's a furry, four-legged creature? It does not. That was just one of his jobs while he was down here. To give his life a ransom for many. But there was another job while he was down here. He showed us who and what God really was. When God came down and invaded this old world through the virgin birth and was laid in a manger... He did not dwell aloof from us on Mount Olympus. He came down to this earth. He did not exist in some world where He manipulated human beings to fulfill the immoral wills of the mortal beings, of the immortal beings as, as the pagans would tell us. No, our God descended 
from his place in heaven and came down here. And when he says in John chapter 1 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Have y'all ever really, uh, have y'all ever really contemplated uh, what that has to say about the person of Christ? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He took on himself an existence he had never had. Now, I did not say that he took on a beginning existence. He's always been. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. When Paul spoke in the book of Hebrews, and you might want to turn there if you'd like to, when he spoke in the book of Hebrews concerning Melchizedek, you remember that he paralleled the priestlyhood of Melchizedek with the priestlyhood of Christ and said, Thou art alike after the order of Melchizedek, without beginning of days and without ending of days, without mother and without father. When he came to this earth, He already had an existence. But when he came here, he had a different existence. He took upon flesh. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. My understanding from what the Scripture teaches is that Christ did not possess a physical body till He came to this earth. God Himself does not possess a physical body. Remember, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You say, well, how can something be a spirit and not be real? In the Western world, sometimes maybe we don't understand this. is because we think that real has to be tangible, material, or physical. And yet something does not have to be tangible or physical to be, physical to be real. Love is real, is it not? Is it tangible? Can you see love? I see some of you thinking about that. I see the hamster kind of fell out the wheel. Put him back in. Let me ask you this question. Is the wind real? Can you see the wind? What do you see? The effects of the wind. Love is real. You can't see see love itself, but you see the effects of it. He says, a body hast thou prepared me. And it actually, if you if you notice this, even here, uh, continuing in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. It says, when Christ came into this world in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He took upon himself something he'd never had before. He took upon himself the seed of Abraham 
a body he inhabited, and the Word that was with God and the Word that was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And God was here. I think, I, I think it's, it's worth noting that he did not say that he took upon himself the seed of Adam. I think it's worth pointing out that Adam is not the one that's mentioned in this text, but Abraham is. The one whom God called out of Ur of Chaldees. This son of a Babylonian idol maker. If you think your life is messed up beyond repair, if you think your life is nothing but a failure that cannot be fixed, then pray tell me how in the world God used anybody in the Bible. Abraham was the son of a Babylonian idol maker. There's an old Jewish legend. I don't know if the legend is true or not, but I know the story is true, so I shall tell the story. That Abraham came home one day at a young age and his father was not there. Abraham took a club and broke every idol in his father's idol shop except one, the meatest, ugliest, devil, demon-looking idol that he had. And he took the club and propped it by that idol and left the room. When his father came home and saw the destruction, he called his son and said, What happened in here? And he said, This demon here arose up and took this club and slew all the other idols in here. And his father said, You expect me to believe that? He said, I don't know. You expect your clients to believe it. It's a great story. I don't know if it's true or not. However, the principle is true that there's a lot of garbage going around in this world that people themselves don't believe, but they expect you to believe it. God took this man out of the Ur of Chaldees and led him about and made promises to him. And the greatest promise that he made was through thy seed shall all the families and all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that blessing ultimately came through the person of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ came to this world, He showed us a lot of things. One of the greatest things that He ever showed us was the true concept of love. In Romans chapter 5, we learn that we can discover God through the person of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ that teaches us the truth about love. In Romans chapter 5, it says in verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended His love. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice it says in verse 6, for when you were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly? It did not say that you cooperated with God because there was a little strength in you. It says when you were without strength, Christ died. For the ungodly. So therefore, when, if he's using the term without strength 
in this verse. When he is saying that you were hopeless and you were helpless and there was none to help you and there was nothing anybody could do for you and there was nothing you could do for yourself, then the concept that's under consideration in Romans 5 is not the same concept, say, as in the book of Revelation when he tells the little church there, thou hast a little strength. Strengthen those things that are ready to die. It's not the same concept. There's a difference between discipleship, which is revelation, and fellowship or relationship, which is Romans chapter 5. And God commended His love toward us. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a lot of things that I may say from this pulpit. And I may, I may get tongue-tied and tangled up in what I try and say. And I may say pot when I ought to say kettle. But I hope there's one thing that I'll never say from this pulpit. Is that you need to work until you feel worthy to be accepted by God. If I ever get to that point, please drag me out and just shoot me at that point. Because there's not much more benefit I'll be to God's people. Because there is never going to be a time when we are ever going to come into the presence of God through our work or our effort to be worthy to see His face. No, what we have seen is that God's love is demonstrated to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That God has given us something. He has given us His grace. He has given us His mercy. And we see that constantly in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no one and no thing that brings you to God above Christ Jesus Himself. The Bible says in Hebrews that when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand. When he by himself, not with our help, not with our effort, not with our coercion, but by himself, we can see the grace and the mercy of God poured out on undeserving sinners such as we. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, there's a verse here. I think you've heard it quoted a time or two. I'm not sure. I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Scripture. Let me tell you two reasons why I think that. The first is that people do not compare Scripture with Scripture to see if this verse harmonizes with other Scriptures. The second thing is, is they don't even bother to read the context of the chapter that it's found in. You remember Jesus told his disciples, he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Please tell me you remember that. Act like you remember that. Greater love hath no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. The greatest love that I can have for you is I can do something for you that doesn't benefit me 
is an application of that. Um, there, there's a whole lot that's going on in what we're talking about here. Uh, let's just take a small practical example of this. Um, you tell your children you love them, right? We want our children to know we love them, right? This before or after you got divorced? That's an ugly question. I'm sorry about that. But stop and think about what I just asked you. The children's going to say, but you told mommy that you loved her, and now you're walking out. You told me you love me, or are you going to walk out on me? You told daddy you loved him, but you've walked out now. Are you going to tell me that and walk out on me? Children are not near as dumb as we think they are sometimes. They're very observant. Tell somebody a gaggle of words. It's better to just show them instead of saying. And the greatest thing about love is doing something for somebody that does nothing for you. It did nothing for Christ to die on the cross. He's already God. He couldn't be any more perfect than He was. He was already omnipotent. He was already omniscient. He was already omnipresent. He couldn't have been any more God than He was before or after He died on the cross. The cross did nothing for Him. It completely benefited you and me. It did nothing for Him, and He didn't have to go. It did everything for us, and we couldn't go. See, the thing about Adam and Christ was, there was nothing in Adam's makeup that dictated he must die. He died on his own. There was nothing in Christ that dictated he had to die. But he did it anyway. The Bible says that God so loved the world, and everybody rolls back and forth on this, okay? That's fine. If Jesus Christ is not God come in the flesh, God's in violation of His own book. If Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, God's in violation of His own book. Because His book says, Greater love hath no man than that a man lay down his life for his friends. You heard that, right? There's no greater love than this. If Jesus Christ is not God come in the flesh, Jesus dying for us shows greater love for us than God has for us. Did y'all catch that? Did I speak too fast for you on that one? The fact that Jesus is God come in the flesh demonstrates the greatest degree of love God ever had for anybody. Secondly, if you just read the text that leads up to verse 16, that'll, that'll clear up a lot of confusion around this text. Verse 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So catch it right here. He says, even as Moses did this, even so 
Must the Son of Man do this? When there's an as and there's a so in the Bible, find out why it's so as to understand the context. What did Moses do? Moses, way back in the book of Numbers, when the people had murmured against God and God had sent fiery serpents among the people to bite the people and uh, condemn the people for their murmuring and their complaining, Moses was instructed by God to set up a stick and wrap a serpent around it set it on the pole, and put it up in front of the nation of Israel that when they looked upon it, they were healed. You know, we still have this same serpent on a stick in America today. Y'all notice this? Anytime you go to a doctor's office, what do you see? You see a serpent wrapped around a cross or a stick at your doctor's office. It's a place of healing. Who did Moses lift up the serpent for in the wilderness? This is not that hard, class. This is an open book test. Who did Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness for? The nation of Egypt. Wait, what? The nation of Israel is who Moses lifted up the serpent for. It wasn't lifted up for Egypt. It wasn't lifted up for the Amorites and the Moabites. It wasn't lifted up for the Hivites and the Jebusites. It was lifted up for the Israelites. And as Moses lifted up this serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth, believeth is not in a future conditional tense. It is in a present occurring right now tense. And by the way, those who think that Jesus was lifted up for all the wicked, unbelieving people in this world, that is not what this text says. This text says He was only lifted up for believing people. See it? You say, well, that means He should believe. That's really what that means. I have heard people quote this back and forth, and I've heard them quote it wrong and upside down every time. Whoever should believe or would believe. All right. In John chapter 11, they told him, the one whom thou lovest is sick. Talking about Lazarus. And before Jesus got to the tomb, he took his own sweet time to get there, Lazarus dies. They come to him and say, bother the master no more. Lazarus is dead. Everybody go home. Party's over. And Jesus says, time to leave and go home now. Time to go where Lazarus is. And Jesus tells them, Behold, Lazarus is not dead, but sleepeth. Well, when Jesus says he sleepeth, does that give you the idea of somebody sort of putting the cat out for the night and winding up the clock and crawling into bed getting ready to sleep? Or does that give you the idea of somebody who's already sleeping? When it says that Jesus uh, eateth with sinners... Is this something that He's going to do in the future as He ministers to the poor people? Or is this a condemnation against Him right now? He's already doing this right now. He's already doing it right now. That little E-T-H, that little F on there, is not just Shakespearean literature. It's just not poetic uh, alliteration. It's there for a purpose. The person in John 3.16 is not somebody who's going to believe, might believe in some future kids condense. If you would just convince them, this is for people who are believers right now. 
God so loved the world. What world? Well, who did he learn? Who did he love in numbers when he lifted up the serpent? He loved the Israelites. He loved his people chosen out of this world. He loved his people that he had known before the foundation of the world. See, this is why Paul says to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, notice verses 8 and 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1 ends with the last word, God. And it carries on to verse 9. God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That you see here, that not only is the love of God connected to the person of Christ, but also the grace of God is connected to the person of Christ. This was something that was given us before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel does not give you life. The proclamation of the gospel does not save sinners to Christ. We do not believe in the concept of gospel regeneration that you got to preach to people to get them saved. The proclamation of the gospel does not bring life. The text says it brought to life life and immortality. You know, when we came in here this morning, all the lights in the building were off. Of course, we had some light coming in through the windows here. But had there be no windows here and all the lights were off, this place would be, what, dark as a tomb, as they say? As soon as we flick on these light switches on the back walls and on these front walls, the light appears and whoosh, the pews appeared with it. Y'all listening? Did y'all catch that? As soon as we turned on the lights... The paint jumped on the wall. And the carpet fell on the floor. That's ridiculous, isn't it? This light that illuminates this building didn't make a single thing here. It just made manifest what was already here. The proclamation of the gospel does not give you light. But what the proclamation of the gospel will often do is draw out that life that's in you. Sometimes that life will creep out the corner of your eye, roll down your chin. Sometimes that life that's in you will crack a little smile from ear to ear. Sometimes the proclamation of that gospel will do as we attempted with the song earlier to remind us there is a place, quiet rest, near to the heart of God. We are able to discover God 
through the person of Christ. We're able to see His love and His mercy and His grace and His compassion and His care for undeserving people. Our understanding of Him can never be perfect without error. But I hope our understanding of Him is a mature understanding. One of those things is to get past the fact that God is sitting in heaven just waiting for you to make a mistake so He can whip you. Some of us have had parents like that. Some of us have had parents that it's impossible to please them. You've met people like that? Maybe you had a boss that was impossible to please them. You had a dad that was impossible to please him. A mother that was impossible to please him. Didn't matter. They always had some negative comment about what you had to say or what you did. That's not God. Number one, you can never please God with what you do. That's the purpose of Jesus Christ. He has satisfied the wrath of God for you. He's given you faith. And with that faith, it then is possible to please Him from day to day and from time to time. I'm sure that He was not pleased with us not caring about anything about the church until we got here this morning. But I think He might be a little bit pleased that we're here. I think He's not pleased sometimes when we've said things that we shouldn't have said, but I think he is pleased when you bow down and say, forgive me for what I've done. I hope that we're able to discover better. God in heaven loves us through the person 